Golasso. This morning we turn to the fourth of the five obscurations. It's a pair. In Tibetan it's Gobara and Goba. Goba, very familiar. Ex- excitation. So that agitation, the restlessness of the mind driven by the mental affliction of craving. That's clear. The second one, a bit more ambiguous or multifaceted, Tibetan was Gyopa, which means regret. So this would be afflictive regret, this kind of lingering, ongoing sense of guilt, shame, which then ties in immediately with low self-esteem, all of these being afflictive, undermining one's spiritual practice, and often strongly associated with the, uh, the agitation and, and restlessness, exci- excitation of the mind. Uh, so there's one, one meaning of the term, afflictive guilt or shame, remorse, uh, but the Sanskrit also, the Sanskrit and Pali also suggest anxiety. So excitation and anxiety. Uh, and exa- anxiety, of course, is very intimately coupled with attachment, because as soon as we're attached to anything, anxiety is built into it, I- built into the equation. If you're not being anxious, you're just not awake. Uh, because if you're attached, then you're, per- you're in a precarious situation. So those are the obscurations. That's the fourth obscuration, the pair of them. And they're put together, obviously, because they're intimately connected. And then in terms of the natural antibody, the natural remedy that's built in, that comes right through the very practice of cultivating samadhi by way of shamatha, it's one of the, well, it's the fourth dhyana factor, and that is bliss or joy. It's pritti in Sanskrit, pritti. Bliss or joy. Well, we can't just turn that one on. It would be nice if we could. That doesn't happen. It's something that does occur, and some of you have tasted it, at least having the nice spikes of bliss, some real joy coming up in the practice. Uh, But then it goes away, it becomes a memory, and you don't quite know when it's coming again, and you want it to, but you don't quite know know which knobs to turn. Uh, So I can assure you that as you go deeper and deeper and deeper in the practice, especially up to the the heights, uh, stages seven, eight, up there in that realm, then it really becomes a much more steady state. You don't, you don't wonder where it's gone. When it's gone, you wonder where it went, right? But then, so what do we do in the meantime? Because by the time you're up at seven and eight, the problem of excitation is gone anyway. So, you know. Well, it doesn't just start then, number one. That is, none of these qualities, bliss, uh, bliss luminosity, non-conceptuality, none of those simply start sometime much, much later. People on a, in a, in a one-week retreat may experience bliss. It can come up at any time, and for some people it will come up more prevalently, but you know, it's part, part of the practice. And likewise, relaxation, stability, vividness, these are part of the practice. So a sense of enjoyment, even if it's not really sharp bliss, but really enjoying it, uh, this can come up, and it can be you know, repeatedly along the path. And the deeper you go, then the more consistent it is. But in the meantime... The problem of coarse excitation is the big issue on stages one, two, and three. And if there's not a whole lot of bliss coming right from the meditation during that time, it looks like you could be kind of stuck. That is, the antidote's way up there, you know, as something really constant, way up there at step seven or eight. You're stuck down at one, two, and three, saying, hello, antidote, can you come down here, give me a hand? And it doesn't work that way. So then we need to um, call in some outside help. That is, the antibody will arise. It will arise, and then it will ward off. You know, why, why do you think that all the excitation is gone in 7 and 8? Because something is taken over and it's warding it off. 
so the antibody is working. You know, it's all, like an antibiotic that's finally really getting to the uh, the bacterial infection. But we need outside help until that bliss is coming right from your meditation, from the inside out. Then we need a little bit of help to arouse it from outside in. And this is where intelligence comes in. Intelligence, imagination, listening, faith, confidence, where these all come in. And specifically looking on, and this is classic, anybody who knows the Lamrim teachings and so many of the other teachings, if you're aspiring for, for something very noble, whether it's realization of bodhicitta, of nirvana, of Buddhahood, and so forth, what do you do? You reflect upon what are the disadvantages of not achieving it, and what are the advantages of achieving it. And you really reflect upon those again and again and again, and then that will arouse the enthusiasm, the zeal, the inspiration, wow, maybe I really could, maybe I really could, right? So that goes for everything, for getting a college education, for starting a business, and so forth and so on, you reflect, well, if I don't do it, then what are the downside? And if I do do it, what's the upside? And then get into gear, right? It's, it's standard practice. So let's review this briefly. Right now, I mean, this, for this practice, of course, it's focusing on shamatha. What's the opposite of shamatha? All of your past lives until now. <laughs> and pretty much your whole life until now. And highlighting, because obviously our lives have many good qualities to them, many joys, successes, sorrows, challenges, and so forth. But in the mix of that, there are these five obscurations. And the achievement of shamatha, namely the access to the first dhyana, that is the exact remedy to really subdue the five obscurations. So now what did the Buddha say about these five obscurations? From his perspective, I've spoken of the four realities, four aryas. What do things look like if you're an arya? Whoa, the reality of suffering looms very large on all three dimensions. And its source is this, the cessation they know, the path they know. And so that's what looms large. From a Buddha's perspective, what's a Buddha's evaluation? What was the Buddha's evaluation? What's the impact? What's the significance of not having abandoned or really subdued the five obscurations? And he says so. He says exactly what he th- feels, what, what, what it's, this looks like from a Buddha's perspective. He said, one who has not abandoned the five obscurations regards himself as enslaved, sick, oh, excuse me, indebted, sick, in bondage, enslaved, and lost in a desert track. Sound like fun? He gave five, so I think he probably meant five, and he put them in a sequence. I'll bet you that he meant sequence as in the sequence of the five obscurations. So consider it. Try it on for size. The first of the five obscurations is fixation on hedonic pleasure, the bounties of the desire realm. And he says there, if if you haven't abandoned that one, and of course it's not enjoying, it's that fixation upon, that attachment to, the craving, the clinging to wealth, fame, power, and all the stuff that can be got by that. The eight mundane concerns. And so he likens this to being indebted, in deep debt. And not just being, you know, having debt here and having money here and so I'll, I'll pay for it tomorrow, but being in debt and not having the wherewithal, not having the finances to get out of debt. How would you feel? 
There are whole countries that are dealing with this issue right now. I don't think it feels good. Right? And there are individuals all over the world, families and so forth, they're looking at crushing debt. And they're looking at this, with, and they're considering maybe they're losing their home, they're losing this, they're losing that, they can't. And so exactly how happy can you be when you're in debt and you don't have the resources to pay off your debt? I think anxiety would just come in like a dark cloud over your head. And there'd be no lightness, no joy, no sense of being carefree because you're just, you're screwed. I mean, you're in, the, you're in a pit of debt and there's no way out. In the old days, they just put you in prison. Remember good, jolly, good, jolly, jolly Good England? It's maybe only 200 years ago or so. I think about only 200 years ago. And I don't think it was unique. If you're, if you're in debt and you can't pay your debts, oh, we'll, do with you. we'll just put you in prison. That'll solve the problem. Right? Pretty tough. Well, is that, a, is that a good analogy? And I, of course, you can guess where I'm coming from. I think it's spot on. That if you're fixated on, if you're investing your life in hedonic pleasure, as really delivering satisfaction, fulfilling your hopes, leading a good life, and so forth, while, of course, you're facing aging, sickness, and death, you're screwed. You're just screwed. There's no way out. There's no good ending. It never turns out well. No dharma, aging, sickness, and death, exactly how does that turn into a happy scenario? Let alone all the misery that you incur as you're pursuing hedonic pleasures, you meet with frustration, success, but then you can't hold on to it. Wherever there's meeting, there's parting. Wherever there's acquisition, there's loss. Wherever there's birth, there's death. Wherever there's ascent, there's descent. Exactly how is that cheerful? You know? And uh, am I speaking pessimistically here? And often said, oh, Buddhism is pessimistic. Yeah. If you come to a doctor and the doctor says you have terminal cancer, he's not being pe- pessimistic. He's just telling you, I'm sorry, but this is, you came in for because you had a little sniffles. I'm sorry, it's a brain tumor. It's not being pessimistic. I mean, it's either a correct diagnosis or not. So we can simply look at this. Is this correct or not? If you think it's incorrect, there's no reason for Shama to enjoy your good life. And I'll watch you. So there's the first one. I think it's a spot-on, a powerful analogy. Insofar as you're, you're just fixated, attached, totally invested in pursuit of hedonic pleasure as the means to the good life, then... You're indebted, and you have no way to pay your debts off. The second one's kind of obvious. Ill will, we all know what it's like. It's awful, right? It's just awful. When the mind is just filled with hatred, with enmity, we're just we're grinding our teeth because we want to harm someone else. Man, how is that anything other than sick? There's just no pretty, pretty face on that one. There's no gloss. At least with the fixation on hedonic pleasure, sometimes it feels good. But this one just, oh. It's like having a sledgehammer land on your forehead. There's just no happy part of that one at all. That's just sick. Right. No one gets any benefit. None for you, none for anybody else. It's just misery. And that's so why not just call that sick? Sick unto death. Right. Third one. Laxity and dullness. He says you're in bondage. Have you ever experienced laxity and dullness? Do you know what it's like when the mind is dull, it's foggy, it's inert, heavy, sluggish, lacking clarity? Isn't it kind of like walking around with like two 50-pound weights on each angle? Uh, I need to go to the bathroom. Uh, You can't even get to the toilet. It's just so heavy. You can't get anything done. Nothing mundane, nothing spiritual. 
You can't get anything done. The mind is just bogged down in a morass of mucus. You know? Or like being one of those poor dinosaurs that gets caught in a tar pit. And you know, blah, 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 blah. You'll see my bones. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so that's in bondage, that's for sure. And then we all know what ruminations like. Nobody needs to tell you about it. The fourth one we've just been looking at, excitation, and call it guilt, anxiety. How is that not enslaved? You don't have freedom. You would like for the rumination, the excitation, the agitation, all of that, when you can't sleep because your mind is so caught up, you can't focus on anything because your mind is so topsy-turvy, so restless, so carried away, so enslaved. That's a, I think that's a perfect analogy. You're just enslaved. You have no freedom. You don't even have a mind. The mind has you. If you tie a dog to the back of a car and then you drive off, the dog doesn't have a car. It's just getting dragged to death. And isn't that exactly what it's like when your mind is just caught in a vortex of rumination, of excitation, of blah, 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 and you think, give me a break, cut the rope, cut the rope. Arr, arr, arr. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no way out except for to get, you know, get the car to stop. That's the only way out. So there it is. That's enslaved. That poor dog, what do you call it, except for enslaved, not only in bondage, that car... That little doggy is enslaved. And then finally, uncertainty. I, think the, I, I really do think, I've never been told this, but I think it's true. I think these, these five analogies are spot on one by one to those five obscurations. And uncertainty is lost in a desert track. My wife and I went out to the Gobi years ago. We were going out to some very holy site, special to Shambhala. And we, we arrived at the edge of the desert, at, at the, train, the train, train stop, and got in a four-wheel drive, and the sun was going down. And it's like Mars. I mean, there's almost no vegetation. It's red. And you see these little tracks going this way, and then a track would split. It's all dirt, so you can really pretty much drive anywhere. Dirt, sand, it just, it's like Mars. And you have just these different tracks going in different directions. And it's just wide open, vast desert. And our driver got on the road and he said, and as we're heading out, saying, where is it? And he said, I'm sure we'll find it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah? Which of these tracks are you going to take? There's no signposts. There's no nothing. It's just a little track. It's a little flatter, a little flatter desert where you see some tire treads. But they go this way and this way and this way. I'm sure we'll find it. <laughs> And what if we don't? You're lost in a desert track. That's what you are, <laughs> in the middle of the Gobi. And that's uncertainty. Isn't exactly it, what it feels like? And that is you don't know whether to go forward or backward, left or right, because there are tracks going in all different directions. And it's like, uh, 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 uh. And meanwhile, you're getting older and older and older, and then you go, uh, uh, and you're dead. And that's what uncertainty does to you. It just leaves you nowhere with no clear direction. And meanwhile, the sands of time are running out, and then you're dead. So welcome to uncertainty land. It's the Gobi with no signposts. So there it is. 
So those are the disadvantages. That's what we've been putting up with. That's what we've been tolerating, thinking, it's okay, it's okay. I'm not a yogi, I'm not a tuku, I'm not a rinpoche, I'm nothing special. It's okay. It's not that bad having five obscurations. After all, everybody else does. Yeah, that's why it's called an ocean of samsara. So reflecting upon that. And the Buddha was giving these powerful analogies so that we would view these more from his perspective rather than from the perspective of, I'm merely human, what do you expect? This is just human nature. In other words, it's just human nature to be just wallowing in suffering and the causes of suffering with no way out. So on the one hand, to become completely disillusioned, not with something that the Buddhists concocted or some belief system. And I'm not saying the belief system is incorrect at all, but I'm saying that what do we really know about the six realms except for our human and then a little bit about the animals, but to build all of your renunciation upon a belief system that you don't know whether it's true or not is a little bit fragile, right? And insofar as our renunciation is based upon something somebody else says, even if the person is saying truth, and I have a lot of faith in Buddhism, I think you all know that, nevertheless, how stable is it really when we know some things and then other things we merely believe? And what the Buddha is getting at is here, hey, do you know about these obscurations or not? And now start looking into them carefully. Am I exaggerating or not? Because I'm giving you a glimpse of what these look like from my perspective. And my perspective is the most optimistic perspective you'll encounter in your whole life. Because pretty much everybody else says, oh, just get used to it. Or maybe there's some medication. That'll do it. You know? I think it's the most optimistic. The materialist view, I think, is the most pessimistic. The most pessimistic. I think it's death on wheels. But I think you know my views about materialism. And then we go to the other side of the ledger. Really getting a clear look, not by simply believing, 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 even believing people who are tremendous authorities and believing doctrines that are true. Actually knowing by investigating your own experience and attending to the experience of others, is this true or not? Are those five obscurations true or not? And then the upside, the achievement of shamatha. Difficult to be sure. But then why wouldn't it be? Otherwise, everybody would have achieved it, and nobody would talk about the five obscurations except as some historical artifact. You know, in the old days, when people were really deluded, they still had the five obscurations. You know? So, of course, it's difficult. What do you expect? But then consider that people have been achieving it for 2,500 years minimum. That's just in the Buddhist tradition. And then reflect upon the qualities. Being able to just immerse yourself at will. Take this ultimate free retreat, vacation, just resting in the substrate consciousness. Even the Buddha himself would do that. It says in the Pali Canon. Sometimes when he'd be tired, he'd be a little bit uh, feeling... Oh, there was one, one case where some monk, monks were bickering. They had some community, community of monks, and they were bickering about some aspect of the Vinaya, about you know, monastic discipline. And the Buddha came, and basically, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, can I help? You know, you're having a big conflict, big argument here. Can I help? I can clarify. And they basically said, you know, we don't really, we'll, we'll deal with this. Thank you, but can you imagine that? But they actually, they did. we don't really need you. Thank, th- thanks a million, but we'll handle this. And the Buddha said, okay. And he went off to the jungle and just rested in the, in the, in the jhanas. He just <laughs> went off and said, okay, they don't need me now. Okay. Oh. And then later, he just went off and rested in the bliss of samadhi. 
And after a time, these meatball head monks, not solving the problem themselves, they came kind of crawling and said, could you help us out a little bit? Sure, happy to help. And then he solved the problem for them. So having that at your fingertip, but not just the ultimate retreat, be able to just rest there, ever so more important is having a body that is supple, light, and buoyant, good basis, but then, of course, the pinnacle. What's the real point? Is you have all of those five dhyana factors at your fingertips, right? Course investigation, subtle investigation, sense of well-being, bliss, and single-pointed, total unification of mind, and that's just normal. That's what you're bringing to every endeavor, every encounter, every situation, every task. The mind supple, buoyant, light. And that's just shamatha. And of course, we don't practice shamatha just for the sake of achieving shamatha. But now in terms of, as as Atisha said, you achieve shamatha, now you can simply open the portal, open the doorway. It's right next door now. (coughs) To achieving a wide variety of extrasensory perceptions, paranormal abilities, doing with this with a wholesome, virtuous, benevolent motivation, tremendously beneficial. As he said, with that combination, Shamatan developing these, these powers, he said, you can accrue more merit in one day than in a hundred lifetimes. That's Atisha, citing a source even beyond himself. So considering that, we all want to do good in the world. I think everyone here, probably everyone listening by podcast, we'd all like to, I'd like to offer something, I'd like to be of service, I'd like to be of service. Good. One day versus a hundred lifetimes. Where do you think the greater service is? You know. And without shamatha, of course, we can help in a myriad of ways hedonically. That's very important. Full stop, very important. But if you achieve shamatha, you develop such abilities of the mind, then you're really poised to help people actually find the path to liberation, to awakening, to help them in a way that will be a benefit for all future lives. Whatever hedonic help you give to people, it's beneficial for this life at most, and that's it. You die, it's finished. Right? Whatever good health, education, money, and all of that you accrue, that, that's all good, it's valuable. But when you're dead, you lose it all. Whereas you help people eudaimonically, help people in terms of dharma, this can be something where the, the gift just keeps on giving until they're perfectly awakened. How to be effective? Well, gain this ability, because Atisha said you really can't help. He raised the bar very high. But he said, you really can't help unless you have such paranormal ability. But then for your own benefit as well, thinking, if I've achieved shamatha, achieved that level of purity and these five jhana factors right there, boy, I'm so close. If especially in the process of that, I've been cultivating the four immeasurables, you know, sweetening the mind, opening the heart. You've been doing that all the way along. You know. How close are you then to bodhicitta? There's such joy in the mind. And the mind is so clear, so stable, so radiant. Why wouldn't you then say, okay, the first thing is, I want to go back to bodhicitta, but I want to cultivate it now with just this incredibly empowered, clarified, stable, lucid, blissful mind. And I want to pour all the juice of that mind investing in the cultivation of bodhicitta until it just arises spontaneously and my mind has become bodhicitta. My mind has become bodhi-mind. That's not something I'm practicing, cultivating, aspiring to. It's the mind that my mind has become. So now we fulfill Dom Dumba's counsel. Give up all attachment to this life and let your mind become dharma. Well, when your mind has become bodhicitta, I think you can say your mind is dharma. Right. And actually become a bodhisattva. 
So all the Buddhists were out three times, but he's throwing a party. They'd be so happy. Seeing another Bodhisattva has come. Join the party. Join, join the family. You know, fantastic. But then, of course, you're poised. You haven't gotten there yet, but you're poised with the shamatha, bodhicitta. You're so close now to bring about, bringing about irreversible transformation, to truly setting on a path from which you'll never fall back, ever, in any lifetime. You're so close with bodhicitta and shamatha, and then apply yourself to vipassana. For example, of the four applications of mindfulness, exactly what Asanga taught, that is his teachings by, from, from Maitreya, the five paths. Achieve bodhicitta, and then stabilize it, enforce it, turn, make it irreversible with wisdom, and specifically four applications of mindfulness. And there you are. You've now something, you've achieved an irreversible good, which means every lifetime from now until Buddhahood itself, every single one without exception, will be meaningful. Because you're a Bodhisattva, every single one. You know, wherever you choose to be reborn, wherever your prayers, your virtue, and so forth leads you, it will always be as a Bodhisattva. Every single one, forever. Until you're a Buddha, then you're a Buddha. That strikes me as very inspiring. But let alone future lifetimes, as important, immensely important as they are, chief shamatha, chief genuine bodhicitta, reinforce that with some genuine insight in terms of vipassana, four applications of mindfulness. Now, these statements about achieving enlightenment, full enlightenment of a Buddha in one lifetime, this is not like communist propaganda, which is only it says, you know, without those thinking, oh yeah, three years, three months, three days, you can achieve enlightenment. He's, it's only Dalai Lama said, you know, all that stuff about three-year retreats. Oh yeah, do the three-year retreat. You might, you too, you know, like winning a lottery. You too, take the three-year retreat. Maybe that will be enough and you'll achieve perfect enlightenment. And the, and the Dalai Lama said, yeah, that's communist propaganda. I just like, I like good old farty word bullshit, you know, because it's not going to happen. If you're already, you know, so close to enlightenment, then okay. But otherwise, forget about it. You can do the three-year retreat without having achieved shamatha, without bodhicitta, and without realization of emptiness. And in three years, you can become omniscient. I think you're more likely to become Santa Claus. Or maybe the tooth fairy. More likely. I can imagine you're dying and taking birth as a tooth fairy. I can imagine. I don't think it's likely, but I think it's possible. But achieving Buddhahood without these three qualities, that's not possible. So, and this sleek path, this streamlined path, with no barnacles, with no, actually with no culture, with no accretions, nothing added on, just shamatha, vipassana, tekchut, tutgel. Shamatha, shamatha. Vipassana, realization of emptiness. Tekchut, breaking through to rikva, tutgel, fully drawing forth all the potential of Buddha mind. There it is. There's the straight, direct, unelaborated path taught by Dujum Lingba, tracing back to Gadab Dorje, Padmasambhava, and so forth. And that is all intended, exactly intended, for those who wish to achieve enlightenment in this lifetime and then manifest it as rainbow body, so it's clear to everybody. There it is. And if you've achieved shamatha, vipassana, you have the bodhicitta, then why not? What would hold you back? So, if one reflects upon these, 
the downside of simply continuing the same old, same old, the status quo, it's probably not that bad, not that bad. I can get by, really, some sorrow is not that bad. When you see it's actually pretty bad. It's in debt, it's sick, it's in bonds, it's enslaved and lost in a desert track. That's not a pretty picture. And that's what we call normal. And then there's this upside. Then by reflecting, using one's intelligence, as you can tell, I'm not talking about blind faith here. I'm not simply allegiance to authority or adopting some ideology or worldview or belief system and so forth. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about using one's intelligence and seeing for oneself what is it like to have a mind so encumbered by the five obscurations and then considering Gosh, maybe the whole Buddhist tradition has not been lying to us for 2,500 years, and there are people who have achieved shamatha and have achieved vipassana, have realized bodhicitta, and it's not just ancient history. So, some joy arises. And what happens here is through such reflection, now it's, of course, I'm talking about discursive meditation, then one desire arises up, and like put, it like puts all the other desires into shadow. The desire of bodhicitta, which is what it really is. The aspiration to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. And in order to do that, to fully manifest the qualities of Buddha mind, in order to do that, to realize Buddha mind, in order to do that, realize emptiness, in order to do that, realize shamatha, couple that with bodhicitta. And therefore, I will now sit down and I will practice shamatha like the luckiest person on the planet. And that should be enough joy to focus your attention so you don't get caught up in the forest of rumination, of guilt, of anxiety. Because this desire rises up and overwhelms all the other desires. So I have no time for you. Life is short. And my opportunities here are precious beyond all description. Therefore, I have no time for anything else. This is the one that inspires me. So let's practice right now. an act of loving kindness directly for yourself and indirectly for all sentient beings. Let your awareness come to rest. Grounded, quiet, serene. As you let your awareness descend into the body right down to the ground, then settling your body in its natural state, your respiration in its natural rhythm,
and settle your mind in its natural state, relaxed, still, and clear. You'll recall that in the shamatha practice of awareness of awareness, that it may be very helpful to enter into the oscillation of release and withdrawal, release and withdrawal, until you sense that sense of balance, the mind becoming grounded, calm, clear, in which case you simply come to rest in the center and let shamatha rise up to meet you. In a similar fashion now, let's continue with mindfulness of breathing. And I say, a temporary phase. Let's consider another interpretation of a Sangha's teaching. And that is, as you breathe in, go ahead and let your attention move, the focus of your attention. From where you feel the breath first coming in at the apertures of the nostrils. Then the sensations of the movement of prana right down to the navel as you breathe in. Noting the very end of inhalation, the interim inhalation, the beginning of exhalation. Then without visualizing, simply focus your attention clearly on the sensations of the flow of prana from the level of the navel back up to the apertures of the nostrils, clearly noting the very end of exhalation, the interim exhalation, and the beginning of the next inhalation.
with each outbreath. See that you hold nothing back, that it's total, complete release all the way through the end. allowing for the interim exhalation without trying to extend it or cut it short. Let it be. Then let the next breath flow in effortlessly and simply accept it without taking it. Receive what's given, whatever it may be, long or short, deep or shallow.
Hello, Nasu. Enjoy your day.